Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. We're back after a summer break, and the art world is stirring awake. From the Armory Show to gallery openings, a new documentary on Leonardo's Salvatore Mundi, replete with substance, together with free associations by the underinformed, and museum programs keyed to visitors anxious about the unvaccinated. Speaking of the unvaccinated, the biggest issue facing the United States may be the stranglehold of Republican legislatures, disparaging scientific findings about vaccines and masks, blocking climate action, and eliminating or restricting the rights of the electorate, from women of childbearing age to voters of color. Museum boards across the country, including those in blue states, have sprinklings of donors in support of such antediluvian thinking, one of whom is a huge supporter of the proposed recall of California Governor Newsom this week. It's not easy, even in good times, to be a museum director, but when you offer a platform for artists to express themselves while courting the intolerant, it can lead to cognitive dissonance on an existential level. So here's to an autumn with declining infection rates, a voting public ready to move forward instead of pining for an America that never was, and greater courage, candor, and transparency in the art world and the world at large. Now on to today's guest. Public art has come to the forefront as a contender and not just an afterthought. When I began at Madison Square Park Conservancy, the journalists told me they never knew how or where to cover public art. It was in this curious netherworld between a museum exhibition and a gallery show. And how can you bring a critical analysis and dialogue to this curious type of work? But I think what we're seeing more recently, something that the public knew very early on, is that works that push an artist in new ways are certainly vital for critical analysis and understanding in the field. That was Brooke Kamen Rappaport, the Madison Square Park Conservancy's Deputy Director and Martin Friedman Chief Curator. Since joining the Conservancy in 2013, she has curated and overseen its program of commissioned public sculpture exhibitions which has included such artists as Diana Al-Hadid, Tony Cragg, Abigail Deville, Leonardo Drew, Teresita Fernandez, Josiah McElhaney, Ivan Navarro, Giuseppe Penone, Martin Perrier, and Arlene Sheckett. In 2019, she served as commissioner and curator of the United States Pavilion at the 58th International Art Exhibition La Biennale di Venezia with a representation of Martin Perrier. Brooke has worked as a museum curator, independent curator, and art writer. During her 13-year tenure at the Brooklyn Museum, she organized numerous exhibitions and wrote corresponding catalogs in her roles as assistant and then associate curator of contemporary art, and previously held positions at the Whitney Museum of American Art and the Jamaica Art Center in Queens. She received her B.A. cum laude in art history from Amherst College and her M.A. in art history from Rutgers University and serves on the board of Amherst's Mead Art Museum and three artist-endowed foundations. Brooke, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Max. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Me too. I had this lengthy summer break. Labor Day intervened. Here we are launching into it. I'm guessing that it's a real advantage to be programming an outdoor space during the pandemic, yes? You're right. We have Maya Lynn's uh, Ghost Forest on view now. That opened in May. Before that, New York City experienced months as the epicenter of the pandemic. 
that was a time of great devastation to individuals and to neighborhoods across the city. So we have been able to maintain our art program in Madison Square Park outdoors and with full access for all citizens. I guess what we've found is that the adaptability and the need for civic sites has only heightened across the last 15 months. And that really confirms the role of open space as being so necessary for artists and students and families and communities, protesters and workers and neighbors. Tourism, of course, faded pretty quickly and is starting to come back, although it's primarily domestic tourism. Are you finding that your audiences are shifting or changing in some way? Before the pandemic, we could count 60,000 visitors a day in Madison Square Park. In 2019, the annual visitorship was about three and a half million. During the pandemic, however, it became a much more local program. As the park has affirmed its versatility and beckoned people to that site, the works of commissioned public art, they are proclaiming this fundamental need for creativity in a civil society. Before the pandemic, we had on view Leonardo Drew's City in the Grass. That was this richly textured, vibrantly colored, undulating carpet on the oval lawn. And that became a gathering place within the park. So parkgoers actually physically located themselves within the rolling plains of Leonardo's 100-foot sculpture. Then that work has gone on tour. It's been to North Carolina and Mississippi. Now it's on view at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford. But in January of 2020, we opened Christophe Wodisco's project. It was a video projection onto the Admiral Farragut Historic Monument in Madison Square Park. Christophe filmed likenesses and spoken narratives of 12 resettled refugees onto Admiral Farragut. So that project was on view and remained on view through the darkest days of the pandemic. We deinstalled that in May of 2020. Brooke, many of our listeners are familiar with the art program at Madison Square Park, but for those who are farther afield, could you share how it came to be? In the late 1990s, the City Parks Foundation launched the campaign for the new Madison Square Park. That was a precursor to Madison Square Park Conservancy. Between 2001 and 2003, actually the Public Art Fund organized exhibitions on site in the park. By 2004, Mark DeSouvereau's was the first commission under the auspices of Madison Square Park Conservancy. The art program was founded by Debbie Landau and Bill Lukashok and Danny Meyer. And David Berliner was one of the art program founders. Adam Weinberg and John Herrnhardt were early forces for the program, as were Roxy Frank and Ron Pizzuti and Toby Lewis. And since that time, we have commissioned distinguished and extraordinary artists to work on the site. And how do you go about identifying artists with whom to collaborate? You know, the art program was part of the founding mission of Madison Square Park Conservancy to bring back civic life to an overlooked urban setting. The park was run down 
in those earliest days of Madison Square Park Conservancy. And it was really Martin Friedman. He was the great museum director from the Walker Art Center. He was the early lifeblood of that program. And today we have a conversation with our art committee who meets several times a year about potential artists and projects for the site. I think that the first projects on view in Madison Square Park, in a sense, laid a foundation for what public art can be in a civic setting, a jumping off point, in a sense, for us to bring on many artists who've never worked in public space before and who weren't on what you might say is the public art circuit. So for those artists It is a way to stretch their materials, the meaning in their work, and also access to the work without a threshold to cross for the public, without the confines of a gallery or museum space. There's enormous vulnerability for the artist to bring their work to a public site with many new audiences, but it's enormously invigorating and also anticipates future work and how artists can stretch their practice in so many new ways. You mentioned Maya Lin's Ghost Forest, which is up, I believe, till November 14th, a powerful installation, very much about climate change. How did that come about? What was the process like working with Maya on realizing it? I approached Maya first in 2013 when I got to Madison Square Park Conservancy to inquire if she would be interested in bringing her work to a public site in New York City. It became an ongoing conversation. She had a real hesitancy at the start because she doesn't typically work in a temporary vocabulary. We kept speaking and she came back to us in 2018 with an idea, a proposal for something that she called a willow walk, which was a lovely flowering arch made of willow branches. That would have been a very elegant solution for Madison Square Park and for the visitors, the park goers. But then that summer, Maya was sitting in her studio in Colorado and looked out the window and saw a great beetle die out that devastated acres and acres of forests in Colorado. And then she said, she just flipped and said, I want to bring a ghost forest to New York City. She's one of the great and visionary artists of our time. And Maya guides us on how to respond and to take action through nature-based solutions to climate. So we were able to source a forester in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey, who then introduced us to a logger in the Pine Barrens who was working on a site of restoration on private lands. And that individual welcomed us to the site where there were acres and acres. Again, this time it was Atlantic white cedar trees that had been devastated by saltwater infiltration and rising sea levels in the Pine Barrens. So these are extraordinarily majestic towering trees in nature. They grow up to 80 feet tall. We selected with Maya on site 49 trees and brought them into the park, trucked them into the park. 
Very different from the tree at Rockefeller Center, I vouchsafe. Now, <laughs> That's right. Brooke, That's exactly right. Maya's project reminds me actually of a project from about 20 years ago for the second Whitney Biennial on my watch. We installed Roxy Payne's Bluff, which is a 50-foot tall tree of reflective stainless steel. And it was in the park in the winter when there were no leaves on the trees. And then as the park grew greener during the spring, it just stood there resolutely. I was very much involved, of course, getting it approved through the Central Park Conservancy at the time and others who were curious about why we wanted to do this. I bet the approval process is different today for these types of projects. Does the neighborhood weigh in? What sort of permitting do you have to go through? Uh, first of all, Roxy Payne also had a project in Madison Square Park in 2007 that was such a strong work. So proud to have had him also mm -hmm. in Madison Square Park Conservancy's program. As to permitting, first, we work with the artist on their proposal and review that very closely with a structural engineer. The structural engineer typically works on skyscrapers and bridges and airports. So for them to work on a temporary project in Madison Square Park, it's a very different time frame for them. And that can be exciting for the engineer. Once a project is engineered structurally and then for matters like weather, frost heaves, then we share that with the Department of Art and Antiquities, um, New York City Department of Parks. They review the proposal and the structural engineering, and we work together with them if there are any issues. As well, the program we always present to the community board in advance of the beginning of an installation in Madison Square Park and answer questions. And pretty regularly, the public weighs in through emails. And when we're on site in the park, they want to talk about the installation. There's also regularly, when we are on site and when we're installing, park goers will come up to the artist and want to talk about the project and the process for the work and the meaning of the work. So with Maya, because the meaning and the materials were so intertwined and interconnected, you know, we had a lot of wonderful and pressing and searching questions about mm -hmm. climate change and why are you bringing dead trees <laughs> to a site with a vibrant tree canopy. People were fascinated to become part of that conversation. Right. I'm sure you have peers around the world who go through similar challenges with neighborhoods, with areas of cities that are not accustomed to this. Do you have a group of peers that you check in with from time to time? We launched a public art consortium in 2017 that's a group of curators from museums and public art programs and sculpture parks across the country. And we've been meeting monthly on Zoom across the pandemic. And we have an annual meeting in person in New York City to talk about issues in the field and also opportunities for collaboration. I'm confident that there are many of the installations that cause a, an arched eyebrow. And that's to the good, to your point. That stimulates conversation and debate. What we like to say about public art is that public art inspires and it challenges and it also provokes. And the public regularly lets us know yes. about all aspects of the works on view. And that's exactly how it should be. 
Yes. Now tell us about the upcoming project by Hugh Hayden called Briar Patch, if you would. Hugh's work will open in January 2022 in the park. It'll be on view through late April. Hugh is a 38-year-old artist who likes to take vernacular objects that we see constantly in everyday life and upend them. So for his project in Madison Square Park, it's called Briar Patch. He is creating 100 replicas of elementary school desks and those tabletops where children sit and learn and the seats of those school desks, those are going to erupt with tree branches and those will ultimately cohere into one tangled assembly in the center. Hughes' work is a critique of the American education system. And you can read the work, you'll be able to read the work in many different ways. With those branches sprouting, that's leading us to an understanding of the piece as great growth and intellectual development that bursts up through the earliest years of education. But once those branches can join in a tangle in the center of the work, we're also led to an understanding that these could be dour seats of learning that linger in stasis because nature just overgrows all around those seats and no activity can transpire. He's interested in lessons drawn through folklore traditions, specifically the Uncle Remus stories that were published in the United States in 1881. Those are condemned now for their racist overtones and for this odd understanding of an idyllic Southern plantation life. So Hugh is mining this, and he's also bringing us to think about a briar patch as a refuge or as a prison. Well, speaking of refuges, museums are struggling today, not just with COVID, but with bigger questions about their collections. You've had such a long experience within the walls of museums. Do you have advice about how museums might turn to contemporary public art commissions as alternatives to collecting? And that includes inside their walls. I guess some of the lessons that I've learned through gathering with curatorial colleagues and public art consortium is how many institutions now are programming outdoor work in public as the gateway to museum campuses and to, to their collections. Many institutions are focusing now on public art as outdoor work for reasons of access. They're wondering how can people be brought into an art institution to inaugurate public interest in collections. So think of what we see when we span parts of the country. The, the Met has a program of commissioned work on their rooftop and now on the sculptural commission on the building's facade. Of course, LA County has outdoor work across their campus. So does the Nelson Atkins. The North Carolina Museum began a series of temporary projects in their sculpture park. Mississippi Museum and Jackson, the Wadsworth Athenaeum, the Hirshhorn, all of these institutions have 
work on view outside. So I think that we are moving and have moved beyond a traditional staid outdoor sculpture garden where works of sculpture, works of art are really choreographed to heighten the impact of seasonal plantings. Instead, public art that used to be considered this generic second or third generation modernism, it's tearing up possibilities in the field. A public art organization with a strong curatorial mission can advance that through the works on view and scholarship and outreach. Public art has come to the forefront as a contender and not just an afterthought. When I began at Madison Square Park Conservancy, a journalist told me they never knew how or where to cover public art. It was in this curious netherworld between a museum exhibition and a gallery show. And how can you bring a critical analysis and dialogue to this curious type of work? But I think what we're seeing more recently, something that the public knew very early on, is that works that push an artist in new ways are certainly vital for critical analysis and understanding in the field. There's going to be a change in city administration. Is that likely to affect your work at all, or is it arm's length? Uh, We work very closely with the Department of Parks. Uh, That's... um, that's our mainstay for the city. Uh, but Madison Square Park itself, the Conservancy, is a public-private partnership with the city of New York. Um, and I know that our uh, relationship, our contractual relationship with the city has been renewed recently. So all steam ahead on that. Yeah. Did the recent rains have any effect on the grounds? The park is actually uh, cocooned by skyscrapers all around it, um, so we were, we were okay. Um, our extraordinary operations team was on site during the hurricanes to make sure that everything uh, was safe and secure. Brooke, with all this going on in your life, do you have any time to write these days as you have in the past? I love writing, and I think that it's a way to see works of art even more clearly through analysis and understanding deeply the work of an artist. I published a piece recently in Sculpture Magazine in the June issue on uh, Shanique Smith, who is a wonderful artist who uses fabric in her work. And I have other things in the pipeline that are forthcoming, yes. I think museum directors are envious of that because for some reason, it's a rare thing to be able to make time for that type of research and writing. And I compliment you. I wanted to ask you about another arena. You serve on the board of three artist endowed foundations, the Adolf and Esther Gottlieb Foundation, the Al Held Foundation, and the Fun Writings Vard and Green Guard Foundation. Can you share some of the lessons that you bring to the board table as a trustee for these artists endowed foundations? Uh, It's been a really interesting time to be involved with artist endowed foundations. Um, As you said, Adolf Gottlieb, the abstract expressionist, then Al Held, so well known for his large scale hard edge paintings, and Ursula von Reidingsvard, the great American sculptor, 
Um, their foundation is named for Ursula and her scientist, um, Nobel Prize winning husband, Paul Greengard. Each of the foundations, of course, has an obligation to maintain and preserve an artist's work. And, and it's important to remember that there can be waves of attention or inattention in the field to an artist's work, to a prevailing style or subject matter. But foundations like these artist and down foundations are in the game for the long haul. And they are going to proceed aside from critical or collecting attention. For example, with the Gottlieb Foundation, the mainstay of that organization run by Sandy Hirsch um, for many, many years, for many decades, has been the emergency grants from the foundation to artists who are in dire need uh, due to a health situation or a fire in their studio, for example. And the foundation reviews applications quite regularly, uh, monthly, from many different artists. Al Held Foundation, which is run by Daniel Belasco and Mara Held, the goal there is to advance Al Held's work. And Ursula von Reidingsvard and Paul Greengard's foundation is, is new, and we have been having discussions with Ursula and her daughter, Ursi, about how the long-term view and what will that be for that foundation. At the start of the pandemic, so many artist-endowed foundations joined the efforts of the Artist Relief Program to bring money to uh, funds, needed funds, to artists across the country and the world. And so this is just another way for artist-endowed foundations to be involved in many different communities serving artists. And I assume Christine Vincent's initiative of bringing all of the Artists Endowed Foundations together elicits helpful conversation. So what are you hearing from your peers and other AEFs about what happens next once we've, in some ways, come out of the pandemic? I know that, and yes, Christine Vincent is singular in what she's done to guide Artists Endowed Foundations and to host and plan annual seminars for board members and for leaders of the foundations uh, to move along their organizations. And those are tremendously informative. I think what we're seeing is that, especially for the Gottlieb Foundation, as we review these emergency grants, is that there will be ongoing and significant needs. And that's something that many of these foundations are focused on. It's a world that's evolving as the resources grow. Certainly the endowments are increasing as the work passes through the marketplace and resources are acquired. So it's becoming a bigger force just yes. in the last decade than it ever yes. was. Absolutely. Well, Brooke, thank you so much for filling us in a bit on what you've been up to and what's coming next. And we'll all be following the remarkable installations at the Madison Square Park Conservancy. Thank you for making time today. Many thanks, Max. I've enjoyed our conversation. We've been speaking today with Brooke Kamen Rappaport, the Madison Square Park Conservancy's Deputy Director and Martin Friedman Chief Curator. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.